0: you're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. And I'm going to tell you plenty about him in a little while and see what the Lord would teach to to us through him even thousands of years later. But I wanted to tell you about something briefly that we're going to do next month. And it will set the stage for what we're going to talk about today.
1: The end of next month,
0: goodness excuse me, October 29th, the last Sunday of that month. We're going to do something different. We're actually going to have one service again that Sunday. It's going to be fall break weekend for most local schools, uh, so there may be people out of town. But we're going to do this uh, one service again that Sunday, and we're going to call it Reformation Sunday, October the 29th. And the reason we're doing that, we don't celebrate that every year or anything like that. But this is a, a milestone because. 500 years ago, uh, this October, something very significant happened in the history of the church that really started what came to be known as the Reformation. And you can come back that Sunday for a fuller uh, sharing about what that is. But some of you may be familiar with what happened. It was October 31st on, in the year 1517. So 500 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther, who uh, you've probably heard of before, who did something where he took what people have come to call 95, there were 95 of them, theses, these like statements that he wanted to challenge the existing church on uh, about certain topics that he felt they had drifted far from what the Bible teaches. And he lined up about 95, well, not about, exactly 95 of these statements on a piece of paper, and he took them to the door, supposedly, of a church called All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed them to the door as a a statement like, we're going to talk about these things, and this is what I think God's word says, not just what the church has learned to say. Uh, there was tons of problems he was seeking to address, but the very first of those has become the most famous. There were 94 other ones of them, but the very first one has become the most well-known and kind of symbolic of what Martin Luther was seeking to challenge and what he was, how he was trying to reform the church. And it, the, it was worded this way. He wrote this. This was obviously in German, translated into English, but he, he wrote this. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, Willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was number one thing that he wanted to challenge the church to remember. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And he was trying to challenge the church because they had gotten into this warp practice of even. Buying forgiveness in some sense, buying these things called indulgences and not really being repentant from the heart, but doing these external things to keep up appearances and even to pay money and things like that to receive the mercy of God. And he was repulsed by this and was challenging and saying that all of our life, even according to Jesus, was to be about repentance of sin. That's to be the core of what we do It's to be the starting place of the Christian life. And he wasn't seeking to to start and be innovative and, like, come up with some new idea, like, this is going to make the church healthy, and this is my idea of how to fix things. He was trying to go back to the message of Christ himself and to the message of Christ's disciples and the people who were around him setting the stage for his ministry and following in his footsteps, that they were the ones calling for people to repent, that Jesus himself was calling people to repent. And so we're going to see, as we read about John the Baptist today, and we're going to see him in this story for a few weeks, actually, and he'll come again later in later chapters in John, we're going to see that he had a lot to say about repentance. And we're going to look at just the start of his story today. The first two weeks, uh, when we had looked at John, we got up to verse 18, and those were kind of an introduction, a big picture of of what John's about to talk about. But now, in what we're reading today, he starts to really tell the detailed story of jesus's life as an adult and his ministry and what he did what he accomplished and just like the other gospel writers he's going to start by talking about john the baptist all four of them matthew mark luke john all of them have differences but they all talk about john the baptist uh, fairly significantly before they talk about jesus and so i'm going to read this for us from verse 19 to verse 28 and then we're going to kind of back up and we're going to see two main things Um, Both having to do with repentance that that God would have, I believe, for us to learn today. So follow along with me, John 1, verse 19 and following. John, uh, this is the disciple John recording this. When you see the name John here, it's John the Baptist. That's who this is talking about. It says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. We'll go back and look through some of the details here, but that's the story we're going to look at today. And I, I would convey what I think John was seeking to, to teach through this story and even the message of John the Baptist. What I would, how I would convey the message today is two simple statements. One is for each, this is for each of us, to obey the call to repent. Obey the call to repent. And the second thing would be to give the call to repent. So one is about our own heart, our own life, and the other is about how we address others. So we obey the call to repent ourselves, and we give the call to repent to others. Now, if you are paying attention, which I hope you are, uh, and hope that you pay attention and try to follow along in our sermons and see that we are teaching what the Bible says, not just our own ideas. You may have noticed the word repent is not in that story. Like, and you may be wondering, why in the world are you saying the main point is that we're to repent and call others to repent? Uh, the, the reason that I, I believe that is what this message of this story is, is because of what John was doing. Uh, he was, he's known as John the what? John the... Baptist. It's his baptism that is talked about here. And when he was baptizing people, what he was seeking to convey and call people to wasn't just to go underwater. What he was seeking to convey and call people to was to repent of their sins. That is what he was doing. And so I'm going to share a little bit of background briefly, just so you know some of what he was doing and why it was so provocative, why people are even being sent to come ask him, who are you? Uh, so you can kind of get a glimpse of what his message was, why he was calling people to be baptized uh, in the first place. And so the first heading is this, is to obey the call to repent. Now that's what I want to talk about first. Some background to John the Baptist, if you don't know a lot about him. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus, not like a first cousin but a little bit more distant cousin of Jesus himself. He had been born right around the same time as Jesus, within a few months even of his cousin, uh, and his birth had been accompanied in many ways just like Jesus has had with miracles with angels visiting his parents, uh, with th- wild things happening, and him even receiving the Holy Spirit from the womb. like He, he was set apart to do amazing things from the beginning of his life. And you have, we've even seen this a few weeks ago uh, when we looked through the first verses of John here. He's already been mentioned, even in John's record. Uh, if you look back at John 1, 6, John, had, the disciple, had written this. He said, There was a man sent from God... Whose name was John? That's talking about John the Baptist. And he's saying, Man, this guy, I mean, all of us have been made by God, but he's saying there is something special about this John the Baptist. He was sent by God to do something very particular. And in verse 7, right after that, John had written that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that is what god had sent him into the world to do was to be a witness not just to to grow crowds and get people to listen but to be a witness to point people to jesus that was what john the baptist was sent to do and you see that his ministry you read through the new testament there's a reason he is always featured at the beginning of these stories because his ministry was booming Like, I'm not kidding. Like, it's hard to even comprehend in the ancient world how this was happening. But there's actually, I believe, more records in secular history about John the Baptist than there is even about Jesus in that day and age. His his message was spreading far and wide, and he was a very large uh, figure around this time frame. And many, many people were starting to come to hear him. Uh, They were coming to listen to him, to even be baptized by him. And you can kind of get a hint of that even in verse 19 of what we read. If, If you're reading along in the story, it says that Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to go ask him, who are you? And so John didn't set up shop and do his ministry in Jerusalem, like in the capital city where the temple was and all the teachers were and sacrifices were to be made and where God's presence was supposed to be. John was actually pretty decently far away on the other side of the Jordan River. And people were still going to listen to this guy and to hear what he had to say. And his, his renown had grown so much that people in Jerusalem are getting wind of this. And they want to know, who does this guy think that he is? Like, who is this guy that is so uh, compelling to people that they would uh, go and... and hear him and so they can't just call him up they can't pull up facetime to uh, say hey john what are you up to they can't send emails they can't message him so they send messengers to go and ask him who he is and what he's doing and the reason i believe that john's ministry was booming so much is this and and uh this is very very interesting john did not invent baptism. Sometimes we think that, hey, we don't really see this in the Old Testament, but boom, New Testament starts and John is baptizing people. Like maybe he just came up with this thing. But he actually didn't. Like baptism was was something that had been happening, but it had been happening a very certain way, at least amongst Jewish people and God's people. Baptism was, the main time that you would see it before John comes is when there was somebody who was not Jewish who wanted to become Jewish. When somebody who had not been born as part of the people of God, they had grown up in some other religion or no religion at all, they, when they wanted to become part of the Israelites, become part of God's people, there was a couple of things that they had to do. One is that if they were a male, they had to be circumcised as part of the law-keeping. If they were male or female, they had to agree to live under the law that they had received it back in the days of Moses. But another thing that had developed was that they would be baptized. That was a, a custom that had developed where uh, they would be baptized as, as a way to picture and to symbolize that as somebody who was an outsider, who was wanting to come near to God and be part of God's people, that they needed to be made clean, that they needed to be cleansed, that they needed to have their sin addressed. Uh, baptism was a picture for non-Jewish people to remember that as they came in uh, to the people of God. But was, what was so revolutionary about John was that he, I don't know if you know this or not, but he baptized Jewish people. That is what was interesting about John. And that's why people were like all in an uproar about this. Like, what in the world? Like, we are born into the people of God. Like, we, I have Jewish parents. I'm part of the Israelites. I, I am an insider with God and with his people. And John the Baptist was saying, I don't care. Like every single one of you need to be baptized. Every single one of you need to be made clean. Every single one of you need to receive forgiveness. And when he would baptize people, it was a call for them to repent of their sins no matter what their background was. It was a call to recognize their sin, to own it, to forsake it. Uh, And he was doing that with Jewish people. And that would have made people scratch their heads and tilt their head kind of cockeyed and wonder, who is this guy? And so it's no wonder when these messengers come to him, they say multiple times in this text, who are you? And they're, they're saying like, who are you to change up what we're doing and to tell us as Jewish people that we need to be baptized, that we need to be made clean. And the only explanation that they can seem to come up with of why this guy might actually be legitimate uh, is that maybe he's one of these pivotal figures we've been waiting for for so long. It's important to remember as John starts his gospel and John the Baptist comes on the scene and even Jesus himself, it's been hundreds of years. I'm talking 400 plus years since God has sent any prophets to his people. It's been largely a time of silence silence. But God's people, they read their Old Testament and they know, hey, long ago God made some promises about how he's going to send certain people. He's going to send certain uh, people to do certain things. And those people haven't come yet. And so they're kind of waiting. When's this person going to come? When When are they going to appear on the scene? And so when they come to John, they're thinking, maybe he's one of these people. Maybe, it, maybe he knows something we don't. And so they ask him a few things. Did you note that? Are you so-and-so? Are you so-and-so? Are you so-and-so? They're like fishing to see if he's one of these people that they've been waiting for. So the first is say... Uh, well, it's implied. We don't actually see them asking, but they're, they're asking if he's the Christ, if he's the Messiah. This is like the most important person they've been waiting for. And John, very emphatically, verse 20, it's like John the writer wants to make you like it painfully obvious. Like John the Baptist definitely, definitely, definitely said he's not the Messiah. He says he confessed, he did not deny, but confessed I'm not the Christ. And so he's wanting you to know if John the Baptist was saying, I am most certainly not the Messiah. I am most certainly not the Christ, the one that you've been waiting for. But then they say, what then? Are you Elijah? This is a fascinating question that they ask because there had been a prophet long, long, long before John the Baptist came named Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet that had been sent by God to call people to repentance. That was the main emphasis of his teaching, was he had called people to repentance. And if you read 2 Kings chapter 2 in the Old Testament, there's this fascinating thing that happens. At the end of his life, he lays the thing down in the Jordan River, of all places, where John the Baptist is baptizing. And the river parts, and him and his little protege, Elisha, go over to the other side. And then it's recorded that, that these chariots of fire come down and take Elijah with them up into heaven. And so he doesn't die like normal people like us, but he goes up into heaven and they can't find his body. They send out search parties and whatnot. They cannot find his body. And so over time, uh, this, this belief develops, and then God explicitly says, if you read the very last part of the Old Testament, like the last thing that God says before, there's this long, silent period. God says, I'm going to send Elijah back. Like read it for yourself. He says, I'm going to send him back. Uh, and so it's no wonder these people come out to the Jordan River, like right near where Elijah had been swept up. And this guy is teaching repentance. And they're like, are you him? Like, uh, like, are you Elijah? And he says no here, which there's some other records in the other gospels that seem to say he's at least coming in the spirit of Elijah. But he says, I'm not actually Elijah. But then the last thing they say, are, are you the prophet? And that's referring to a, a promise that God had made back in Deuteronomy 18. Like back in the days of Moses, long, long ago. Uh, God said he was going to someday send a prophet that they must listen to. Everything that they say. And so they were still waiting for this Messiah. They're still waiting for Elijah. They're still waiting for this prophet to come. And they say, are you any of these people? And he says, no, I'm not. And, uh, so, but what he does say that he is... Look at this, and this will help you see why I think his message was one of repentance. Verse 23, John the Baptist does understand himself to be the fulfillment of something in the Old Testament. Verse 23, it says that John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And what John the Baptist is saying there, he's quoting a a Wonderful passage of scripture from Isaiah chapter 40, uh, where God had said that someday there's going to be this voice that comes from the wilderness, that comes from the desert. Which this would, When John's on the other side of the Jordan River, that starts to be like deserty and more thought of as wilderness for them. Um, but Isaiah had, God had had Isaiah say, there's going to be a voice that cries, prepare the way of the Lord, or make straight, that's how John words it here, make straight the path of the Lord. And that phrase, makes straight, has like moral connotations to it. It's, a, it's this idea that we are all bent people and broken people and warped people in our hearts and in our lives. And we need to have our path to the Lord straightened. We need to be fixed. We need to be changed. And John, as he baptizes people in the Jordan River and around the Jordan River, isn't just trying to get people's hair wet. Like, he's not just trying to dunk people underwater for the sake of doing it. He's trying to call people who are coming to him, every single one of them, even Jewish people, to repent of their sins, to realize that they are broken, bent, sinful people who need to be straightened, who need to be changed. And so John is calling people to repent over and over and over again as he baptizes out at the Jordan River, and it is causing an uproar. And I believe that we would be wise, and I think we need to hear this call come to us first. That we need to obey this call to repent ourselves. Like the Bible in many places says that all people everywhere are called to repent, and that includes sitting in this room in 2017 right now, that all of us are called to repent of our sins. That word is very bible sounding. I totally know that we can say it and not really know what it means. I'll try to explain it real briefly. When we are called to repent, when John was baptizing people and calling them to repent, there's a few things involved in that. One is first just acknowledging your sin in the first place. That's something that we struggle to do sometimes, to even acknowledge that I'm a sinner, that I commit sins, that I, that I do sinful things, I think sinful thoughts. But the first thing in order to repent of sins, you have to own that you do sin. And we have to acknowledge and, and ask ourselves, how am I falling short of what the Lord has called me to do in my attitudes, and my behavior? Sometimes they're overt and very obvious people, and sometimes they're more in the subtleties of my mind and my heart. But I have to acknowledge first, if I'm to repent of my sin, I have to acknowledge that I have sinned. But the, the harder step is to hate our sin. Like there's many people who acknowledge their sin. They know they're broken. They know they're bent. They know they do wrong, but they don't hate their sin. Maybe they even love it. They enjoy it. They revel in it or they feel neutral toward it, although we can't even be. But if we're to repent of our sins, it means to hate our sin. It's to see it the way that the Lord sees it, not just as these little mistakes that I make or these little ways that I fall short, but that these are acts of disobedience against the one that has created me and the one that has created this world that I live in and these people that I interact with. It's a, a seeing of my sin as vile and ugly and, and making me unworthy. So I have to acknowledge sin and hate sin, and this is the hardest part, It's to forsake my sin. There's many people who know they're sinners and they hate that they're sinners, but they have no desire and no commitment to leave that sin behind. That they stay in it even though they're miserable in it, and they will not forsake it. They will not let go of it. They will not leave it behind. But that is the hardest but most important part of repentance is not just to acknowledge my sin, not just to hate it, but to forsake it, to, to move away from it, to, to set it down and seek to live on that new path of obedience to Christ. And so when John calls us to repent, that's what what we're called to do. Acknowledge sin, hate sin, forsake sin. But that must always be paired with faith in Christ. That that yes, we're called to repent of our sin, to, to hate it, to walk away from it. But I'm to actually love something else, to love someone else, to put my trust and orient myself to something else. And that is the person of Christ. And what he has done for us upon the cross. That, that when we see how ugly our sin is, we don't just stay there, but we turn to Christ. No, he took it upon himself. That he took the judgment and the punishment that I should be receiving upon himself on the cross so that I might be made clean. That th- that record might be removed from me. And he was p- crushed. He was put to death upon the cross for my sin. That sin that I hate, that I forsake. He was crushed for it. But God raised him from the dead, and he offers me forgiveness, he offers me eternal life, he offers me hope, he offers me power to change. Like we are called to repent of our sins, but to put our trust and our faith in Christ, the one who has dealt with those sins. So John's ministry was to call people to repentance as he baptized, to call all people to repentance. And I would remind us that we all need to repent of our sins. There's a pastor uh, named Tim Keller uh, out in New York City uh, who said this, and I think this is a thought-provoking statement. Uh, He said that because there's different things at times that we need to repent of. There's different backgrounds we come from. Some of us are very religious and very much raised in a Christian home. Some of us come from completely secular or atheistic or even other religions. So there's different things that we need to repent of. Even in our lives. And he said this. He said, unbelievers need to repent of their immorality. Religious people need to repent of their morality. He said, uh, unbelievers need to repent of their immorality. But religious people need to repent of their morality. Both need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I would emphasize that second part to us today because I'm guessing in our town and in our church that most of us have grown up in religious settings. Most of us have grown up around the Bible. We've grown up hearing the word of God, having people tell us about Christ, uh, having people tell us about the hope and forgiveness that we can have in him, and we've just fallen asleep under it. We've just started to, to believe, just like maybe the Jewish people of John's day did, that Man, I'm just grandfathered into this thing. Like, I, I'm good. Like, I, I live a moral life. I do pretty good things. And, and we don't really see a need to repent of our sins. We use this phrase sometimes in our culture to say that people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Have you ever heard that phrase? Uh, maybe it's been used against you before or you've used it for other people. We, we use that to tr- sometimes try to cut down people who are wealthy, to say how much privilege they've been given and how they don't work hard and those types of things. I think in many ways that there are people in our culture, even in our town, I guarantee in our church, who we may be able to think of as, as even though this is wrong, thinking that they have a silver spiritual spoon in their mouth as they're born, that they're given the word of God over and over, uh, they have this blessing given to them over and over as children into adulthood of the word of God, and they just take it for granted. We think that we're good, we think that we're moral, we think that we don't really need Christ, we don't really need to repent. If we're honest with ourselves. But Thomas Watson, I I will say this before I share this quote. I think that will lead us to sometimes not love Christ as we should. Because we don't take sin as seriously as we should. Thomas Watson, a pastor, once wrote this. He said that Christ is never loved until sin is loathed. Christ is never loved until sin is loved. And if you're anything like me, I grew up hearing about sin over and over and over, but I always thought of it as something that was other people's problems. And I would say, yeah, check the box, I'm a sinner. But I never felt the weight of my sin, the ugliness and the vileness of it i'd never felt a real need to repent and turn away from it and it wasn't until i started to see how ugly and messed up and twisted and warped i am in my heart and my mindset and i may look good to on the outside to people morally but i was messed up and sinful and needed forgiveness it wasn't until i started to loathe my sin that christ started to just boom with meaning and significance and awe for me because if my sin problem feels small to me then my savior is going to feel small to me but if I realize how massive of a problem I have, how much I need to turn from that and run away from it, then Christ is going to loom large and the cross is going to be central in your life. know, man, my sin was dealt with. It's not some trivial thing. It is a big thing, but it's been dealt with upon the cross and Christ suffered for me. And so we all are called to repent of our sins. The youngest among us, the ones who have grown up in church, the oldest among us, the godliest among us, the most the one people think are the most immoral among us, every one of us is called to repent. There's a level field that we are all on in need of repentance. So we are all called to repent. So we ought to obey that call to repent of our sins. But following the story of John, I would also say this, that, that we're not simply to obey and to listen to John's message, although we are. Like we're, we are to respond to this message, this call to repent. But we're also to follow the example of John the Baptist, of calling people to repent. That's what his ministry was marked by, was calling people to repent of their sins. If you notice here, so he, they have this questioning that goes on. They keep saying, who are you? We need to give an answer. And he quotes that passage from, an, from Isaiah, and they're seemingly not satisfied with that. And so in verse 25, it says, they ask him again. They ask him then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So if you just pause there, it could have been that John, the Baptist, as he starts to hear this, he probably already knew this, but it's becoming increasingly evident to him that people do not like what he's trying to do. People do not like that he's calling people to repent, that he's calling people to turn and to change, uh, to, to repent of their sins. And it could have been tempting, perhaps, for John the Baptist to start to back off of it and say, "Look, this is not worth it. Uh, uh, like people can figure this stuff out themselves. They, they'll hear from somebody else, they'll, they'll do whatever, whatever they need to, and God can save them even without me. He could have used any sort of theological excuse he wanted, but he doesn't. Like when they keep challenging them, "Why are you doing this?" and implying by that, you better stop this." Like, he he does it. Like, verse 26, it says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And so John makes it very clear, I'm going to continue to keep baptizing. You can ask me all the questions you want, but I'm baptizing with water. I'm going to continue to baptize with water. And he does so with confidence. He continues, and you see in his ministry, he continues even after he's questioned, even after he's challenged, even after it's made clear that they want him to stop. He does not stop calling people to repent. He, he knows the most loving thing to do for someone who is stuck in their sin and who is in their guilt and their sin is to call them to change, to call them to repent, call them to turn to Christ, the one who can bring them forgiveness. He knows that is what is loving to do, is to tell them to repent, to call them to repent. If he did not, and if we back off our call, our responsibility to tell others to repent, we're like a doctor who knows someone is sick, And we know the cure. We know what needs to happen. We know what they need to do to change and to find healing. And we just shut our mouth and don't tell them. Like that is not loving. Like the loving thing to do for your your children, for your neighbors, for your spouse if they're not a follower of Christ. For your coworkers, for your roommates in your dorm if they're not a follower of Christ. The loving thing to do if they are not repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ is not to shut your mouth. It is to call them to repent and to to do so with certain attitudes, though, and demeanors. I want to show you a few things here from these verses about how John called people to repent that I think are instructive to us uh, of how we are called to tell others to repent in our lives. A couple things here. One thing I think you see in John that's very evident in this text, uh, in verse 27 especially, uh, and then in the verses that will come later that we'll look at, is you see that as he calls people to repent, he does so with an immense amount of humility. His words are just like dripping with humility. Did you notice that? He says, hey, I baptized with water. And remember, he's calling people to repent. But then he says, but among you stands one you do not know. That's talking about Jesus. He says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie and John is trying to convey in his words and in his tone that he is humble that especially as he relates to Jesus that he ought to be humble that he that he rightfully is humble. He says that, that uh, I am not even worthy to untie the strap of this person's sandal, of Jesus' sandal. In that day, as, as best as I understand it, when there was a teacher, uh, a rabbi, and there were disciples or people that would follow them, uh, if there was someone who was going to untie the sandal of that person, it would be like the lowest. Uh, slave or servant of that person, the lowest rung of the the social ladder in that day, that would be who would be given the responsibility to untie the sandals of that person. And John the Baptist is saying, hey, when I think of my teacher, when I think of Jesus, the, the rabbi that I follow, I'm not even worthy to do that. Like I'm not worthy to even unstrap his sandal if, think about this. If there was any person in the world, and I'm not just saying this because I think it, if there was any person in the world who would be tempted to be arrogant and prideful as they call people to repent, it would be John the Baptist. Because this guy was amazing. Like Jesus himself, you read in Matthew eleven, eleven. Jesus himself said about John the Baptist, he said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, which would include all among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus said that. This guy was godly. He was respected. He was powerful. He was significant. He had been sent by God, John said, to, to be the witness, to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. He, if anyone would feel a right to be uh, arrogant or be looking down upon others, it would be John, but he doesn't. He has the opposite attitude as he calls people to repent. He does so with humility and brokenness. The message he's giving to people to repent of their sins, he has very much, you can tell, preached it to himself. I'm a sinner, and I am coming through the same gate that I'm calling other people to come through, the gate of brokenness and repentance. That's how I came to Christ, and that's how they're coming to Christ. And I will never, I think John would say, I would never call people to repent out of arrogance and condescension, thinking I get to speak down at people. But we are on the same playing field, all in need of repentance. And so as we call people to repentance in our dorms, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, as we call people to repentance, we must do so out of humility and out of love, out of, out of compassion to people. Never coming to people like, you struggle with what? Like, you need to cut that out. And like, act, like how could you deal with that? Like, and act like there's some vile thing about them that we don't understand. That ought to never be the life of a Christian. When we call people to repentance, it's, it's doing so with compassion and sympathy, knowing we are in the same boat apart from the grace of God Last thing I want to point about how John would, would call people to repent and how we should call people to repent, is, and this I hope this goes without saying, but that he didn't just call people to repent, but he pointed them to Jesus, as he called them to repent. You notice that as he's, he's saying, hey, I baptize. Yeah, I call people to repent. But then you see this over and over with John. He points them ahead to the Son of God, to his cousin, to, to Jesus Christ, the one who could actually fix their problem, the one who could actually deal with their sin that they needed to repent of. He, he points them to this one whose sandal strap he's not worthy to untie, who's going to come after him and do far greater things. We ought to never, as God's people, just call people to repent, 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 stop doing that, turn away from that sin, how could you deal with that sin, what are you doing, like wake up, that type of attitude, and just try to get them to stop sinning, like if that's all that we offer to people, they may clean up their act for a little while, their life may feel a little better in the short term, but that is going to do nothing to bring them joy and peace and forgiveness and the eternal life to come. When we call people to repent and to turn away from sin, always, always, always call people to turn to Christ, to turn away from these things that they pursue and that they run after, turn to the one who can fix them. Turn to the one who can heal them, the one whose death can bring them forgiveness and whose resurrection can bring them life. Like always, or let me say, never call people to repent without telling them about Christ, the one who can bring saving, the one who can br- bring healing in their life. John did that as he called people to repent, and we ought to do that as we call people to repent. Repentance is a difficult thing. It, it is a hard, hard thing. It, repentance, that what we're called to, as human beings and what we call other people too, it's difficult. It it, it strips us bare as human beings, doesn't it? Like, but it's at the start of the Christian life. It, it makes us acknowledge, man, I am guilty. I am sinful. I have been. I continue to be. Like I am, I am vile in some ways inside me and I hate it. But we can't do anything about it. And it, it's vulnerable and it's fearful at times uh, to come to the Lord in repentance but there is good news. There is a gospel message that a Savior has come for us. That, that, that sin that we carry with us and that we've committed, He took to the cross. And he bore all of God's judgment for it. And he has been raised from the dead and offers us cleansing and offers us forgiveness and offers us eternal life. And so we can repent with confidence. We can repent with hope that even as I come weak and vulnerable and sinful and ugly to the Lord, that if I come in repentance and faith in Christ, he'll receive me. Like He'll he'll welcome me into his family. He will bring me forgiveness. He will give me eternal life. And so I would call us to that today, to repent of our sins and turn to Christ in faith, whether it's for the first time today or for the millionth time. May we repent of our sins and put our trust in Christ and call others to do the same.